This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jessie Mae Peluso, and I just had a fucking birthday. That's right, your girl turned 40. Wow, I don't know how that happened. Truly do not know how it happened. It snuck up on me, but I feel amazing. I truly do feel amazing and grateful, grateful for this podcast, grateful that I'm alive and breathing, grateful that there are people out there who enjoy what I put out. So thank you. Thank you to everybody who has stuck with this podcast and who enjoys it and who finds value in it. If you think or feel that my voice sounds weird, it's because I just woke up in my hotel room after my birthday. Did not go on a huge bender last night. I played Tacoma and this airs uh, September 17th. And you guys still have a chance to come see me in Tacoma. I have two more shows tonight. So if you're listening to this and know somebody in the Pacific Northwest, have them come out to a show. Have them come out and party with us. I still consider it my birthday. If I'm being completely honest, it's not over. It's not over until the fat lady sings. And that statement will probably get me canceled. But it has been quite quite an experience here in the Pacific Northwest. A lot of weed. People are just handing me weed. I found edibles in my pocket. Not complaining. Not complaining at all. Uh, Actually kind of praising you. I praise you. And having just a fantastic time with my friend Clea McNeil, who's opening for me on these shows this birthday weekend. And I think we're going to a state fair here in, uh, where the fuck are we? Tacoma which should be very exciting. Who doesn't love a state fair? Love a state fair. Uh, it's the only place where I really will dig into some fried food. I'll eat anything on a stick. You let me know if it's on a stick. Basically, if it comes in a basket or if it's on a stick and it's spent most of its life in a vat of heart-wrenching oil, probably going to put it in my mouth, but only at a state fair. I feel like that's a rule that we have to live by. It's just an American rule. What you eat at a state fair will probably cause you some health problems down the road. Everybody knows that saying. But no, it's been a great time. And I'm going to, the next podcast I do, I'll get more into my birthday and what I've learned through this entire experience that I've had up until this point. All the lessons I've learned, my 40 year old lessons. But for now, this episode, we have a special guest. This individual I was introduced to by my cousin, Allie who is a VP of marketing at Atlantic Records. And she's always retweeted and reposted his posts. And there was one in particular where she was like, this is your soulmate. 
and it was a picture of his butt not his bare butt but his pants were down and he was standing in front of a creek and i i was like i need to pay attention to this individual and then upon some further digging found that he is quite a talented um poet i consider a writer he considers himself a writer and an instigator which falls right under the umbrella of what i feel i do <laughs> if you add in performance into that and i really connected with a lot of his writing i love his approach to how he writes it's very real it's funny it's edgy it feels fresh yet rooted in a very very common tradition and rooted in an uh, in, in, in education it's it feel it feels like he's teaching us something each time that he puts something out and i'm grateful for that truly because there's so much trash out there and this guy is the cream that kind of rises to the top in my opinion he is the author of speech therapy fucking history and feel free to quote me i felt so honored to sit down with him and speak with him and have him offer some of his education his creative education for us on the sharp tongue podcast so i hope you enjoy this interview with the writer creator and instigator aka the captain mr kyle creek sharp tongue podcast Beep, 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 You're listening to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse May Jessie. Peluso. It's a personal look. Well, it's not really a look because it's a podcast. I'm already fucking this up. This is kind of like a verbal comedy diary. A deep look into the crevices of my mind. It's going to get dirty. You might cry. You'll probably laugh. Hopefully you'll laugh. The whole point is for you to laugh, but you also might cry. I talk about my family. I talk about farts. farts. I talk about love, loss, comedy how hard it is to make it in this biz i'm a fucking professional each week it's something different sometimes i have a guest host sometimes it's gonna be a movie companion episode sometimes i just ramble about the bullshit i dealt with the week before you never know what you're gonna get it's raw uncut and funny it's me perfect boom and we're recording we good yeah i um all right i dug kind of deep on you it's funny because (laughs) yeah go ahead (laughs) I was going to say, I appreciate that because I've done a few of these recently where people don't seem to, to know who the hell I am. And I was like, why did you reach out in the first place? Did your producer just suggest this and you figured you'd take advantage of the fact I had a lot of followers or something? That's exactly and it. I'll, I'll, I'll get on with the host and they won't know a goddamn thing about me. It, it's one of my pet peeves. You know, I, I feel like when you go through life, annoyances, like your grievances and annoyances are the things that can provide you with tools to do better for yourself. So I can't yeah. stand that when I go on an interview or something and they go, so tell me about yourself. Yeah, what's what? funny is my friend, my friend who runs like a, uh, she basically runs a studio. So she oversees a lot of different podcasters. She says the number one thing not to do is ask, is say, tell me about yourself. Cause it immediately lets the, the guests know you don't know shit. Yeah, and you didn't do, and you don't have an hour to just, yeah. it, 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 and it shows you're not curious. It shows that you're not interested in really learning about the person. And I then was, why are you doing a podcast? What? That's the whole point <laughs> is to like learn and share and educate. So I, I totally connect with that. Um, I was introduced to you 
by my cousin who was reposting. And <laughs> so your cousin has good taste. Amazing taste. Fucking Im impeccable taste. It was one particular post that you now have pinned with your butt. Well, your, your shorts are down mm. and you're over a creek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually Mere Lake in the Uintas. I was fishing on my birthday. I'm actually from that area. And I have the same birthday as my dad. So I've tried to spend every birthday with him. And he still lives in Utah. And so I always try to spend my birthday back in Utah. And so that's where we were for that photo. Um, fishing one of the lakes. I grew up fishing many times as a kid. And I just felt, you know what? I need to bring a little bit of my... Uh, my new style to this lake and fish with my pants down <laughs> well i also have my pants down often i do alzheimer's advocacy and the one way that works to get more eyes is skin so i have this hashtag ask for alts and i'll put alzheimer's information and health information based on brain health in the caption just to get people to come mm -hmm. in and that's why my cousin was like i think i found like a platonic life soulmate for you this guy has his pants down so it was funny and then i dug it's, in to you it seems to me like there's a better angle there for alzheimer's like you know ass makes it more memorable so that's why you have to show skin if you want someone to remember what you're actually teaching them you know seeing as how alzheimer's is all about memory loss yeah it seems to me like that's a pretty natural angle to take right and it's like the head it's like a the head and the ass somehow have this mm. correlation between each other you know it's like well it's the whole reason i mean you want to go back to uh, the early days of motivational speaking and talk about someone like tony robbins he says the whole reason he used to swear is because it breaks up the feedback in people's heads and back in you know the 90s it was pretty pretty risque or you should say pretty controversial to get up on stage and be dropping f-bombs and so when he would do that he said he does it to break through the static and it makes people listen to what you're saying and so very similarly what you're saying is there's you know a correlation to doing something off color or you know slightly risque like that and getting people to pay attention to the message i mean there's like a science behind why that works right and it's funny because I'm sure you have experienced in in the art that you put out. There's some people who just don't get it, and thanks for calling it art, by the way. Well, that's what I, I I connect with it. I mean, honestly, the way you speak and you have that edge. I think the one thing that makes you such a interesting <laughs> instigator, which is one of my favorite ways anyone could describe themselves. And I've, I've been that my whole life. We have a lot of really interesting um, synchronicities between us. First of all, my I was supposed to be on my dad's birthday. I was supposed to be born on his birthday. I didn't know that about you. What's the birthday? September 30th. I'll say, if it was August 21st, that would get way too fucking weird. <laughs> I would just throw the laptop. <laughs> I, would just, I would just turn off this podcast and be like, I don't want to get into this... This is too voodoo for me right now. This is Tuesday. I don't need this magic in my life this early in the week. <laughs> I don't need all this witchery. Um, right. The way you talk, like you're, to me, you're kind of like a modern poet and, <laughs> and someone who's really tapped into the human condition. And I receive it because I have a mouth on me and, and I, I believe that 
swearing in my own art is something that also breaks up the monotony and gets people to pay attention and to sort of, you know, when it's used strategically, when swearing is used strategically, which you do, and you mentioned Tony Robbins as well, it really is sort of like uh, the glue between it all that keeps people's attention. But um, after my cousin introduced you to me on social media, I just did a lot of digging and it was just so interesting to read how you write first of all and second of all um you're prolific you're so fucking prolific the magnitude of of topics that you talk about are highlighted in your book speech therapy and i bought it and i highlighted the whole fucking thing i'm like i want to talk about this 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 and this <laughs> so i had to like <laughs> condense a few things but um can we talk about some of the the topics that you put into that book yeah, we absolutely can. I mean, before we get started, though, I, I really do want to bring it back to the idea when I said thank you for calling it art, because yeah. I do view my work that way. And one of my biggest pet peeves is seeing artists and writers and musicians and creators of all sorts call their work content. I hate the word content. I think it's a filthy, dirty word. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people have resigned themselves to being a content creator as opposed to a writer or an artist because everyone's just trying to feed the algorithm. I mean, the whole word content means you're just trying to feed a machine and you're trying to make something, you know, go viral or get noticed. And I do try with my work to have an air of poetry to it because that's the kind of stuff growing up that I always really enjoyed writing. I mean, reading, um, big fan of Shel Silverstein. I really liked Dr. Seuss. I liked all that classic. I liked that classic rhyming structure of books when I was growing up. And so it's just something I've always been drawn to the simplicity of it, but also the ability to communicate a rather heavy message in such a almost lighthearted fashion is what I've tried to do. And in reference to, you know, the swearing aspect of it, one, I do that because like we talked about, it does cut through the clutter and also it helps with rhyme structure sometimes, but more so it, it feels more authentic to me because when I'm talking with someone in person or writing a book like speech therapy, I wanted it to feel very conversational. And when you're talking with a friend, trying to give them advice or hold some space for them, you don't talk in an overly professional manner. You don't try and wow them with your vocabulary. You try to talk them on the level they're going to receive it. And so that's intentionally where I try and keep a lot of my work. And that makes sense why it really resonates. And I think, obviously, besides you being a prolific writer, that relatability is what supersedes what you're speaking about, how people perceive their work is content. It's very obvious that your work is work. And, you know, I agree with you. I think it's like this desire to maintain relevance that diminishes people's art. Like they're more concerned about being relevant than they are relating and Mm -hmm. actually relating on a, a level that is authentic to how they live. And I also understand 
wanting to keep up with the algorithm because it's such a forefront of our society. I don't agree with it, but I get it. And I see people losing themselves in this intangibility to keep up, you know, the desire to keep up sort of takes precedence over the desire to express. And that's, I definitely have to find a middle ground for myself and in doing a deep dive on you, uh, I watched a couple podcasts and it was interesting. Another synchronicity we had, we have is somewhat, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, a little bit of an identity crisis between Kyle Creek and the captain. And I want to talk a little bit about you creating the captain and, and what it, what part of you felt like you wanted to sort of pivot and what that was like for you and and how you and how you sort of somewhat have peeled yourself away a little bit from the captain and may, maybe I'm wrong but that's just what I when I was looking and listening to podcasts and reading a little bit about you I was curious about why you developed the captain and also about your conversation surrounding Kyle versus the captain you're not wrong at all um I think identity crisis is a good a good label for that because when I started the captain, it was at a time in my life when I was working professionally as a writer in advertising and I was very grateful to be making money as a writer because a lot of writers, you know, don't make money. It's kind of something people do as a hobby on the side. And I was paranoid of losing my job because I was working with a lot of high profile clientele. Um, I didn't want to have something I wrote or expressed online come back to me. And this was kind of the early days where people were starting to get afraid of cancel culture and the online mob. And I was, I just didn't want to lose my income. And so I, I was writing a lot of scripts for TV and I wrote a joke about shopping for furniture and I compared it to shopping for a coffee table. Um, and I compared that to dating in the sense that you're not looking for someone that's too big or too small. You know, in the end, you're looking for someone that's stable and fits your aesthetic. And that's kind of the same thing you look for when you buy a piece of furniture. And I thought it was a great concept. The client at the time was afraid it could be seen as body shaming or something like that online. So they didn't want the joke in there. And I didn't want to let the joke die. So I decided to tweet it on my Twitter account. And it got a little bit of attention. And then I started taking a lot of my concepts that I thought were like A-level concepts. And I would tweet them. And then I'd write the B and C concepts into my scripts for clients. Because I figured they wouldn't appreciate the really good ones anyway. And I just used the name The Captain. Because I didn't want people to find out that I was, you know, kind of living this dual lifestyle per se. And over time, it just kind of got bigger and bigger where The Captain became my main outlet it was my outlet where i could write without client feedback i could write what i wanted to write i could say what i want i could express my opinions but i also had almost this veil of protection to where if i'd said something very controversial or harsh or even like something that was very vulnerable um i could kind of step back and be like oh that's not kyle creek that was the captain and so it was my way to dip the toe in the water and see what parts of myself I was comfortable sharing online to such a large audience and kind of see how I was received. And so it allowed me to be myself, but at the same time, 
I could make it appear as though I wasn't being myself, if that makes sense. And totally. so it was a prote- it was a protective layer. And I don't think people need, you know, a name or a moniker. I think we do that all the time with people in our lives. And over time, it just started to really wear me down to where I didn't feel like Kyle was the forefront of my life anymore. Mm-hmm. I would go out and I'd get recognized as the captain. I'd be at a bar and people would call me the captain. And more people knew me as the captain than knew me as Kyle Creek, except for my close friends or family members. And it started to make me kind of just really question who I was, what I was, what I, my purpose was. And I fell into a really deep spell of depression for quite some time. And I hit it very well, kind of keeping up, you know, my online image. And it got to the point I couldn't do it anymore. And so I took a break from social media. I told people I was having a bad time. And I was, you know, getting verge of suicidal, feeling like, you know, my life was kind of purposeless. And I had just been feeding this beast for all these years for no reason. And when I came back from that social media hiatus, I put my real name on my profile. And I just made the decision that if I was going to continue writing as much as I do, I had to do it from a real part of myself i had to do it as kyle creek and not this character and that's when i started really embracing it i did end up authoring two more books under the captain though because there was a little bit of you know value in that name but the speech therapy book you referenced is very much written from a kyle perspective there's a big difference between fucking history and speech therapy because my fucking history series was more or less they're more entertaining as opposed to revealing and the speech therapy book is really me talking from my own experiences, what I've dealt with in life, what bothers me, what triggers me, how I've worked through it. And that's the last book I'll author with the captain on the title. Everything moving forward is definitely going to have Kyle Creek on it because it feels real and it feels just like the most honest way to write at this point. And so my work has always been me. I just didn't put my name on it. And that right there is where I connected with you, listening to you talk about that. And you mentioned something where it really connected right to my core, where in the past you felt like you always had to be on. And that's where, for me, this connection with you and this identity crisis and the feeling of always having to be on, which I want to hear about from you, is something that I have tried to find where I exist, where my essence really exists because I'm a performer, I'm a writer, and all of my output is this performance. The podcast is where I've really been able to lean into my essence and talking about the things that interest me where I'm not feeling like I have to crack a joke every fucking five minutes. Mm -hmm. And, And it's become that because I'm in this evolution for myself where... I'm starting to, I've identified having a little bit of an identity crisis with my performance self and trying to figure out where the truth is in all of it because it, the truth permeates all of it, right? Your, your art mm-hmm. gives to life, life gives to art, but there still needs to be a clear delineation between the creator and what's created. And I think that's where it can get a little muddy and where it's really important, like to do what you did to step away from it all and sort of reassess and find, find a place where you can create from yourself into your art and also maintain space to be you without 
it being all this convoluted existence. Um, I would like to, yeah. yeah. I was going to say real quick, I could imagine being a comedian. uh, That feeling of always having to be on would be immense. Uh, Everyone expects you to be, you know, the funniest one in the room. And, you know, they want to hear your commentary on things. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I've, I've never done stand-up, but I would imagine a lot of the routine is rooted in some truth, but then you use a little bit of hyperbole and exaggeration to make it funny. And so you have that, like you're saying, you have that, that performance self, which is obviously you to the extreme in a lot of ways, and people meet you or friends that are around you, they see the reaction you get for that, and they want you to always be that because they want to be associated with someone that's you know, has a little bit of status, someone that's seen as being, you know, funny and can command a crowd. And so I think stand-up comedians, if I had to guess, probably deal with that more than anyone as far as having to be on, or as opposed to a musician, I mean, unless you're walking around with your guitar on you everywhere like some douchebag, no (laughs) one's going to grab you and say, hey, play me a song. Like, if you don't have a guitar in your hand or you're not behind a drum set, people don't expect you to perform. Whereas a comedian, it's like, as long as you are somewhere you can talk, they expect you to perform. And I could, I, yeah, I could see that being very, very complex at times. And it would be hard. And I would, I would have to take a lot of time out of the limelight if, if, if I were doing that for a career, just like I'd have to take these hiatuses just to really, you know, rediscover who I am. And I've had to do that. I've had to put, make a concerted effort to go inward, to be more spiritual to tap into my spirituality because the entertainment industry is almost antithetical to the spiritual journey and ironically Mm, the spiritual journey feeds into all entertainment so it's this weird paradox where you have to find space and you know you saying like you felt like you always had to be on I was like fuck like that is that's something that I battle with but not not even battle with so much more because I'm cognizant of it now, but it's that it's almost like a chicken in the chicken or the egg thing. Like what came first? Was I always a performer or, (laughs) you know, so that's sort of the, the existence I'm in now where I'm realizing it's okay to step away from it and it's okay to pull back and not perform. And, and hearing you say that was like, you know, validating you, you also, um, mentioned a couple things I want to touch on what you said before I heard you say that suppression is a recipe for depression and I think it sort of wraps into what we're talking about now could you talk about that a little bit more and what you mean by that for me and I, I think for most people a lot of our depression is perpetuated because we're told that we need to fake it and we need to act like everything's okay And when you're going through life, being a fake version of yourself, whether you're pretending to not feel emotion or you're pretending to believe certain things or you're pretending to like certain things, your whole life becomes fake because everything you're doing is for other people. I mean, the reason you pretend to be okay is so you don't make those around you feel sad. The reason you pretend to like certain things is to avoid conflict. The reason you pretend to like certain things is, again, to avoid conflict. And then you come up with this complete divide of who am I really and why do I keep trying to pretend to be this person? And then that's when you start falling into 
this realm of hopelessness and purposelessness and it just breeds depression particularly if you're already going through it i think the worst thing you can do is pretend you're not going through it mm -hmm. that is the time of your life when you need to actually be yourself admit that you're dealing with some stuff talk to people you can talk with it about because the further you just perpetuate this avatar version of yourself the further you're going to separate from a version of yourself that actually can have the potential to feel good and i think we've seen a lot of this the past two or three years who who the fuck knows how long it's been at this point but just <laughs> i don't know just what day it is this right just this online barrage of gaslighting and making people second guess themselves and making people feel dumb or making people feel like they're a murderer like there is so much shame and guilt thrown around and so many people kept their opinions to themselves they were afraid for their like family members to find out what side they were on or they were afraid to even ask a question because asking a question automatically made you you know perceived as some extreme conspiracy theorist and so everybody was living this half version of themselves and that's why we saw rates of depression skyrocket suicide skyrocketed all sorts of mental disorders skyrocketed because so many people were forced to not live in their you know authentic truth per se and so when i say self-suppression is a recipe for depression it it is a hundred percent true um even what we're talking about where you're a performer on one end of your life you still as a performer have to kind of suppress the real version of yourself because you're putting on an act and if you do that long enough you lose track of who you are and you see this happen with actors when they go into these roles and they do this method acting and like they after like you know 15 months of intense filming they come out of it and they're just like fucking lost and then you hear on the news that another successful individual you know decided to kill themselves and people think oh i don't know how they could do that they have everything yeah on the outside they have everything they have success but on the inside they don't know who the fuck they are and that is why i believe so many creatives specifically creatives you know musicians and stuff like that struggle with that it's that detachment of the performance part of yourself and who you are when you go home at night it is it's like the divide between the ego and the self it, i think that's the eternal struggle mm -hmm. for a human being is finding some balance because obviously ego provides some purpose and the oh, self good is the, the foundation yeah it's it's definitely I think there's some survival uh, mechanism there, but this society, mo our modern society has become built in a way that pulls us away from the self and we pack things on, all these external mm -hmm. items and people who match an idea of who we think we are. All of these things that we have surrounding us sort of reflect the idea of who we think we should be instead of who we really are. And, and very rarely mm -hmm. do we ask ourselves, who am I? We don't even sit down with ourselves and be still and, and really allow that question to unfold without any sort of distraction. Um, you, you said something else that you said you felt called to do more with your platform. Was this on the heels of coming back from your hiatus? Did it happen during the hiatus? And how did you find a way to do more with your platform my coming back from my hiatus was fall of 2019 i basically took the summer off 
And at the time, I told myself when I came back, I was going to be very outspoken about my mental health and dealing with depression. And so I talked about it a lot. And I had a lot of men, you know, reach out to me and say, hey, you know, I saw your lifestyle and I thought it was the one I wanted to live. And seeing you talk about it just made me feel better, gave me hope. It helped me feel understood. And I had women writing me telling me their husbands or their sons, you know, because of what I was writing, they decided to, you know, seek therapy and work through their um, their struggles as well. And so at the time, kind of the purpose I felt was talking about my mental health. But the purpose you're talking about, the one I've talked about on some other podcasts, didn't come to me till probably late 2021. And that was after I'd had my son. I'd, for the past year and a half online, been trying to speak out very heavily against, you know, the manipulation that was going on, trying to encourage people to, you know, stand up for themselves and have some independent thought. And, you know, the whole time I'd get attacked by both sides, like saying I came across too conservative or I came across too liberal, which was ideal because it means I'm a person. It means I'm in the middle, which is where most people are. And, you know, I had someone say to me one time, why aren't you choosing sides? And I said, I have chosen sides. The side I've chosen is the side of people. Like, I want to support individuals. Like, I want to bring people together. I don't want to further all this division. And so after doing that for a year and a half, plus becoming a father, I had some time to sit and just kind of think about what I was doing with my platform I believe I had just finished writing speech therapy, which I, I knew was going to be a book that would help a lot of people. And I just kind of feel almost as though I'm at the end of my lifespan with my use of social media, the way I currently use it. It doesn't appeal to me like it used to. And I post less and less and less. I mean, I used to post every day and now I kind of have to remind myself to post once a week sometimes. Because I feel like there's just more I can do as a writer than continue putting out work on social media. I know it's very helpful, but I just feel like it's time for me to kind of, you know, let that ship sail per se and kind of move into something else. And I don't know when that's going to be. And I honestly don't know what that something else is. But for the first time in my life, I truly believe it. Like, I feel like there is a big impact that I'm ready to make and I am willing to step into, you know, the firing lane if it means I'm going to get attacked for it, if it means I'm going to, you know, have to deal with some blowback, but I'm ready to do that and I feel confident doing that. And that is largely because I've embraced back the Kyle part of myself and I'm not afraid of exposing that about me and I'm not afraid of talking about pretty much anything and everything on a podcast now. Whereas when I was very much still in the captain mindset, I wouldn't go on podcasts. I thought podcasts were stupid. I didn't like them for one. And I wouldn't go on one because I didn't like the idea of exposing that much of myself. I wanted to remain this like mythical character behind the screen. And so every podcast offer I got up until 2020, I said no to. I refused every podcast. I just didn't want to do it. I wasn't comfortable doing it. But now I just... I honestly don't feel like there's anything that can hurt me. Um, whatever happens online or what happens to, you know, my reputation, I'm, I'm not concerned about it. And so I'm willing to 
to do something big. And I just, I don't know what that is yet, but I'm open to it. Have you considered as you're talking, I feel if you're open to my opinion on what your next journey could be, because I have this direct line with people sometimes and what they're doing and what their path is going to be. Like I said earlier, I'm a little bit of a witch. I, I see you in a, a leadership role, taking the culmination of what you've put out and all of your output, your creative output, and possibly putting that into a seminar style for men who need so much help. And not like they're weak or they're incapable, but they're the product of a society as well, the same way I am a product of society as a female, the same way society has affected me, and the same way that the things I've experienced that I'm very open about, rape and sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, being treated like an object, and all these sort of things that could have victimized me, and at a time in my life I was a victim, transforming it into a body of work that can be therapeutic for people. And that's where my transformation is now moving into stand-up as someone who's still telling jokes, but within the jokes, there are lessons to be learned for women to learn how to empower themselves and overcome these traumatic events mm -hmm. that happen. And looking at all the things you've experienced and the way you write and how accessible you've made yourself, there are so many men who need to hear that, who need the healing. And because of society, there's a stigma around it. That's my two cents. I'm not telling you what to do with your life, but I do see a larger purpose for you as well. Not, not that what you've done, not to um, downgrade your accomplishments at all, but all of it bleeds into something greater. And I, I think you thinking that is, is an example of you knowing your calling and your purpose is evolving into something larger. And I think that's awesome. I really do think that that is um, inspiring that you're not like, oh, I'm just going to hang the hat and that's it. I wrote some, my books and they were successful and yeah, I was really, you know, had a great social media following, but I'm going to go keep my pants off on the, in the river for now. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I honestly don't feel like I've written any books yet. I kind of feel like what I've done so far was warm up. Mm. Um, I like what you're saying because it falls in line with some of the recent speaking engagements I have opened myself up to doing. I just did one in LA two weeks ago. Did one in Austin before that. I'm working ah, on one in New York. And I missed you. Are you in Austin? I'm in LA. Yeah, I was in. I was at the last bookstore. I think August 23rd. I was there and gave a speaking engagement. Uh, I'll have to catch you um, next time. Yeah, I'll be back for sure. I love that store, and I love. I like going into the belly of the beast of, of LA and talking to the people that I think need to hear it the most. Um, so I'm open to doing more of those, but more so what you're saying in particular with men is I agree. And I am working on a book now that's going to be a memoir style book that talks a lot about everything I've gone through in my life. And It'll most likely be angled towards men. I think men will probably find it more appealing to them, but it honestly is a book I think every human will get something from. Mm -hmm. But I am writing it with kind of the, the notion of helping men out in areas of life that I perhaps struggled with or 
just came to some profound realizations, particularly becoming a dad and how it kind of changed my life. And I think a lot of men, it's probably 50-50. There's plenty of men who are excited to become a father, but then there's the other half of men who it scares the living hell out of them. And I think society has kind of pushed this notion on people that your life is over when you have a kid. And when you become a parent, your life changes and you're no longer living for yourself. You're living for someone else. And so that means you no longer have your own goals and ambitions in life. And yeah, your life does change. It should change. Honestly, if your life doesn't change at all, you're probably a pretty shitty parent. But <laughs> it changes in a way that I think personally has made me more ambitious. It's made me more creative. It's actually probably helped my career in the sense that I work with a different you know, fire in my belly now, as opposed to I used to, because I'm really trying to, to be a man of character or be someone that my son would be proud to call his dad. And I was one of the guys that was scared to death about becoming a dad. And when I found out my girlfriend was going to have a kid, it really set me back. And I had a hard time with it. I really internalized the idea that, you know, my independence and my my free spirited life was going to come to an end and it really set me back into some depths of depression because you know another thing people don't understand about depression is it's it's not linear i mean once you deal with depression you're likely always going to go through bouts of it in your life you have to learn how to quickly pull the reins back and turn it around when it happens you have to catch it before it turns into a six month period and so i started to dip back into it and i was really just worried. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for the responsibility. And I learned so much about myself coming out of that. And I'm, I, I tell people at the time, nothing scared me more. But now that I've been a dad for almost a year and a half at this point, nothing has ever made so much sense to me either. Um, it's something that I think I just needed to have happen. And I'm so glad it did. And I don't remember what we were talking about. I'm getting off on a tangent here, but no, I actually was going to go into your father yeah. conversation. I was going to ask you about Perfect. learning you became a dad, <laughs> and I teed you up then. You did. What was was there a moment after your son? Yeah. After your son was born, do you remember the first moment, maybe when he was born or whatever it was, that those thoughts of fear and the unknown and, and, and depression dissipated or was it a gradual process for you to step in to the other side of that? Well, the fear was always there. The fear is, the fear is still there. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I know that I know that I'm capable of, of handling it though. And I know that, that I know that most of the fear I have is completely unfounded and, and ridiculous. Um, I came to terms with it before my son was born and it was twofold. It was largely because I had a conversation with an old friend of mine who has five kids and he was the first person aside from, you know, my own father or perhaps my brother. He was the first man that actually gave me really good supportive advice about it. Um, and this is one of those times I realized I was surrounding myself with a lot of uh, of low-character individuals. Um, I'd met a lot of people through my creative career. I had a lot of connections. But a lot of them were people that I think were drawn to me because of my party lifestyle. And so 
when it came time for me to kind of move on from all that and focus on something else, I heard a lot of that, oh shit, what are you going to do now? Or you had a good run, that kind of crap that I think a lot of men pass on to each other. But this one buddy of mine told me, listen, this was the best thing that ever happened to me. And he just, just seen how I could tell that he was genuinely so stoked to be a dad. And this is, we were at a, a suite in a Vegas hotel room getting ready to go out and gamble. So we were very much having like a dude's night and all the other guys were, you know, getting fucked up on all sorts of things. And we were having this conversation and I could just see that he really meant it. And he was really so stoked to be a dad. And he's like, I can't wait to get back from this trip and just see my boys. And that in combination with my girlfriend, not only being incredibly patient, but also very helpful in the sense that she told me, she's like, listen, I can see that you have some childhood trauma that is kind of causing you to feel this way. And at the time, I didn't believe I had childhood trauma. I thought I had a great childhood and I did have a great childhood. My parents loved me. They took care of me. They did everything to make our life as, as good as we could have it as children. But what I had is some religious trauma to where I grew up Mormon LDS and very kind of strict adherence to it for most of my life until my teenage years. And that's when I started to really suppress myself because when I sought advice about the typical teenage shit that people deal with, I would hear, oh, you should go pray about it. Go read the scriptures. Go talk to your bishop. And that's not what I needed to hear. I needed to hear a human to human connection of like, listen, this happens to all of us. Here's how you work through it. Here's why you feel this way. And so it caused me to feel so fucking misunderstood. Mm. The fact that some book, you know, that was translated by some, you know, some crazy asshole um, <laughs> was supposed to be the book that was going to guide my life. It just made me feel, it made me feel alone. And so I, I started to suppress a lot. And I think that ultimately probably contributed to me creating the captain later in life because it was a comfortable way for me to start putting myself out there. But to go back to what I was saying, my girlfriend identified this about me. And she said, listen, if you don't work through this, one, we're probably not going to stay together. I can't parent with someone like that. Two, your son is not going to have a father in his life that he can trust and rely on and go to. Like, you need to work through this shit. So it was kind of, my buddy's real positive, just almost like an energy and an aura I could feel off him. And it was my girlfriend kind of giving me that knock over the head that just kind of pulled me out of it. And I started to really get excited about it because as a writer, I've always enjoyed new things. I've always wanted novelty and experiences to draw from. I'm sure you experienced this as a comedian. Yeah. You want to get, you you want to get into fucked up situations and you want to have weird conversations because you can pull good ideas from them. And so, at the time, my only idea of like creative inspiration was going out and gambling and doing like debaucherous shit. And once I wrapped my head around the idea of wait a minute, there's so much I can draw from from being a dad too because. As I parent this kid, I'm going to have to go back into my own self. I'm going to learn so much. And I just got excited. I was like, this is going to be awesome for me as a writer. But it's going to be so rewarding just to watch my son have these realizations for the first time. Or One of my favorite things is watching him interact with animals. Because growing up, I was obsessed with animals. I always had animal books. I had a, We had a farm with chickens. And I was always out catching stuff in jars. And <laughs> to watch him interact with animals is just so rewarding to me because it takes me back to what it's like to appreciate the simple things in life and so 
once that all kind of came full circle, by the time my son was there, it felt so goddamn natural and it felt so easy. Within like a month, I couldn't even picture my life without him anymore. And now he's just assimilated so seamlessly because we made a conscious effort to have our son adjust to our life as opposed to us adjusting to his. And so I was telling someone yesterday, he's 14 months old and he's been on 34 flights with us. <laughs> he's probably more, he's probably more well traveled than, than a majority of these, uh, these content creators on Instagram that consider themselves travel bugs and have like eight airports in their, their, uh, profile caption. You know, the kind of people that say, oh, I, I don't want to have kids because I want to travel. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? My kid travels more than you. He just got a passport. And once I realized it really is like everything else in life, parenthood is what you make of it. Just like your life and your career is what you make of it. It just, it was easy and it was fun and I love it. It's, it's that mindset, you know, hearing you say that it, it sort of, you settled right into it. It's... Practicing that mindset and coming to the mindset of seeing it as a gift instead of a hindrance is what creates your your reality. And you could have gone either mm. way, you know, as I'm listening to your what you've been through and your past and the work you've done and everything that you've experienced, you can go either way. And, and I think it's a practice, you know, creating a mindset that creates the life you want it, it definitely involves implementing different practices and implementing different tools and and having you discuss being trepidatious and worried and having all of these almost like a equivalent of like a postpartum de depression it was like a prepartum depression that you were experiencing yeah. <laughs> and then coming out on the other side and being like what the fuck it's 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 it speaks to the things that we worry about rarely ever culminate. Our fears mm. rarely come true. And fears are useful. They inform a lot. They inform the story you've been telling yourself about yourself. They inform how much your trauma still has a hold on you. And they're also obviously useful for survival. Um, what I'm curious about is you know, you kind of spoke about it a little bit, but I always wondered this because I'm almost 40. I don't have children and I've been, you know, ha have those thoughts sometimes like, oh, you're 40. You, you can't, there's no fucking way you can have a kid now. Your kid's going to come out and it's going to have a, you know, arm out of its forehead because you're rotten on the inside. Like all these thoughts sort of pop into my head. <laughs> I don't know who you're having sex with if you're worried about having a kid with an arm coming out of their forehead. So you haven't been on Bumble. Maybe a we should go on Bumble and maybe we'll a, discuss. That's it. Maybe address that first. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about sex, baby. Yeah. Listen, here's the deal. Having a pleasure practice is good for you, and you need to get into it. It can improve the quality of your sleep, help you de-stress, relieve pain, even give you that lit from within glow as you go about your day. Yes. We are talking about what orgasms can do for you. But most importantly, exploring your pleasure on your own helps you get in touch with yourself, literally, and learn more about what you like. That's right. It leads to better sex. And we all want that. Come on. How many people in our past have been not worth it? So check out Air, the suction vibrator from Dame Products. Air is a powerful arousal tool for fans of oral stimulation. Oh, yeah. 
oh yeah, I had a swallow on that one. My mouth got a little moist. <laughs> Dame's air creates thrilling pulses of air and a soft seal around your clitoral region so you can go all the way right away. Not only is it perfect for beginners, it's also waterproof. Go swimming with it. It features five intensives, intensities and five vibration patterns so you can explore what works for you. And the best part, Dame offers hassle-free returns within 60 days. So your satisfaction is literally guaranteed in so many freaking ways. Can you handle it? Listen, power up your pleasure with Palm or any other toys from Dame Products. If you guys go to dameproducts.com and use card code SHARP for 15% off site-wide, that's code SHARP, S-H-A-R-P, to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. Well, you kind of spoke about it. Um, I'm interested to know how, through parenting, can you and do you repair your trauma and your childhood and how do you do that without imprinting those traumas onto your child? Yes, you do have an opportunity to do it. I wouldn't say everyone does it, but I think the opportunity is there. And for me, it's been as simple as when I look back on my childhood and I think, okay, when did I first become insecure about this? Or when did I first start to worry about that? What caused me to go into that space? And why did I hold on to it for so long? And then I'm thinking, okay, so probably around this age, I'm, my son might experience this. And here's how I would like to be there to hold space and respond to him because I know how that can imprint on him for a long time if I don't get ahead of it. And so my girlfriend and I have already, we talk about stuff, you know, quite often as far as, you know, what are we going to do when he first comes home and talks about being insecure about something about his looks, you know, if some kids tease him for something, you know, how do we address that? And it's just kind of getting ahead of that for us and for me that I think has kind of helped me reparent myself because I'll go back and be like, I mean, I used to get teased for being tall, which is a stupid thing to get teased for. But a lot of kids tease people for being tall because you look so goofy compared to your friends. And when I was in junior high and high school, I mean, I was 6'6". When I was 16 years old, 15, 16, I grew pretty quickly. And so I, I hated it. I didn't want to be tall. I wanted to be shorter because I wanted to be able to play um, you know, football, like a lot of the kids played football where I grew up and, you know, the best football players were short, kind of stocky belt built dudes. And so I felt kind of tall, gangly and awkward. And I would get, you know, it's, it's like great Dane syndrome. Like I have a great Dane too, actually. And he gets picked on at the dog park the most by all the little dogs. Cause he's just a big gangly, goofy <laughs> Scooby-Doo. And I felt the same way growing up. And it wasn't until I became an adult and I realized, wait a minute, being tall is fucking awesome that I finally got over that and it started very early in my life and I was really uncomfortable about being tall until I was probably 17, 18 and it's just ridiculous to think of how a couple comments of you know someone calling you the jolly green giant when you wear a green shirt to school in second grade um, can stick with you and that's really Probably if I can go back to it when it first happened, I remember wearing a green shirt to school in second grade. And everyone started calling me the Jolly Green Giant. And it's made me feel so awkward and kind of put in the spotlight that I stopped wearing green. I was like, I can't wear green anymore. Kids, kids, kids are going to make this. Kids are going to make this joke. And 
Oh, kids that shit happens to us as kids. But it's just it's just crazy. Like if I if I can get ahead of that for my son, like you know I'm going to. And so a lot of you know reparenting for me is just kind of going back and being like that was ridiculous. But I understand at that age why it would feel pretty heavy and hard to deal with. I remember when I was little, I was called stilts because I had such, I still do have very thin legs and it stuck with me. It stuck with me through my entire life so much so that I would wear long pants when it was hot out because I didn't want anyone to call me crutches or stilts. That's what I'm saying. It's it's left imprints on us. And I would imagine by now that has somehow worked its way into your act at least once. Oh, yeah. And... And, and, and it's probably been a hit. It's probably been a really fucking good bit. <laughs> and now I also, I just have my legs out all the time. Now I'm like, yeah. when I'm 85, I'm going to wish I had the legs I have today. So I'm going to let these now stilts making, run around. Yeah. Now you're making up for lost time. You're like, <laughs> you know what? Just all the time. <laughs> you know, I want to touch back on something you talked about being raised Mormon and religious. I'm curious how being raised that way has informed your parenting in a positive way. If any. Oh, in a positive way for sure, because without going too much into it, cause we could hold, record a whole podcast on my views on organized religion. I think organized religion largely requires shame and guilt to operate. If you remove shame and guilt, a lot of people would take these blinders off and they would be like, wait a minute, this is a fucking joke. Why am I involved in this? And so just understanding the repercussions of shame and guilt and and fear as well in my life. um, I try it's, I mean, my my son's pretty young, but I know as as he gets older, it's going to become more apparent is letting him understand it's okay to make a mistake for example we all feel a little bit of guilt when we make mistakes but organized religion almost like forces you to hold on to that guilt and that shame for a long time and so in in understanding that it's going to be having those quick conversations with them like listen this is what happened you don't have to feel bad about it. there's no reason to feel guilt about it here's why you're likely feeling guilt but here's why you don't have to feel that guilt you know let it go release it and you know it's part of the human experience to go through this and if I could probably pinpoint one thing that I think has been more detrimental to my life than anything, it's guilt because I felt a lot of guilt growing up and I even feel guilt now about stupid stuff. Like I feel like I'm not performing or I'm not showing up for people the way I should. And I'll feel guilty about it. I'll feel guilty for taking time to myself. I'll feel guilty for expressing my real opinion sometimes when I see the way it hurts someone's feelings. And in helping my son remove that guilt. I mean, a little bit of guilt, like you're saying, fear, it's healthy. We need to feel some emotions because they kind of serve as a compass to help us kind of um, track our life. If we don't feel either, we become a, you know, a sociopath and um, it's all downhill from there as far as everyone around us is concerned. But that's probably the way that I know it's going to benefit me the most. And I'm very grateful. Like, I don't regret anything about the way I grew up. And it's probably an important thing for me to, to state is a lot of people seem to think that I, I might regret my childhood because I grew up Mormon, but I don't. I think it was great. I think I had a really good community aspect growing up. I mean, I knew all my neighbors. We we're all friends. We all went to church together. And so in that sense, I always kind of felt like I was a part of 
at least my community or my neighborhoods and it, it raised me with really good understanding of you know helping your neighbor and stuff like that um but seeing where it affected me is definitely where i'm going to kind of flip um the the coin and look at the other side of it to help my son as he grows up and it sounds like we grew up similarly i, I wasn't real raised religious when my parents separated jesus left too and so i've good always guy. he's it, a good guy like that i know it's just like santa claus comes around once a year jesus is gone the neighbor's dad's in the, the prob- house the problem though is jesus never pays child support either he just no. fucking dips he dips <laughs> and then oh, okay you carried me on the beach once cool bro it's like a little you're a martyr like let's stop there's there's plaques all over marshalls we get it you're a really strong guy <laughs> i think <laughs> You know, I, the way I was raised, my parents, we talked, but not enough. And it sounds like the communication mm, aspect yeah. of parenting is where you're going and have probably begun, even though your son is still young, to yeah, have I, conversations and discuss things because a, so much can be resolved with just a fucking conversation. Oh my God. Like if everyone just talked through everything that bothered them, they would realize life is infinitely easier. Um, yeah, as, as open as I try to be on, you know, a podcast like this, for example, I want my son to feel just as comfortable asking me questions. And that's part of what I hope to do with some of these next books I'm writing is, heaven forbid I, I die young, my son should hopefully be able to read those books and understand how, who I was as a person. You should be able to get enough from it to get an understanding of his dad. I think you can to an extent through the captain character I've created, but it still lacks a lot of that hard-fought learning and emotional lessons that I plan to incorporate in my next books. And so I'd like to write a book that helps my son. And that's really what I did with speech therapy. When I wrote that, actually... I imagined if my son was 17, you know, 18, and he was going through any one of these problems, how would I talk to him about it? And it helped me write that book in record time because I had such a succinct audience. And I knew that if I wrote it for him or wrote it imagining I was talking to him, um, obviously at an age age where he can understand some language, um, it just made the book easy. And... I just hope that he knows that anything awkward or just uncomfortable or embarrassing in life, like, listen, I've probably done much worse and I've probably been far more embarrassed and I've done things that were way more shameful than anything he does unless he becomes a complete derelict. And so I just, I just hope he knows that he can talk to me about it and I'm not going to judge him. If anything, I'll probably think it's funny and I'll use it as inspiration for some work I'm working on at the time. Um, someone was telling me, oh, you know, when, when he becomes a teenager, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't wait. I think it's going to be so fun <laughs> when he comes home with, like, these stupid teenage mistakes. Like, I can't wait to deal with them. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a fucking riot. And also how detrimental it all felt at that age. Like, yeah, I, oh, it was, I think the it's world be awesome. was ending, you know, and it's just, it's kind of yeah. like when somebody's too deep in an edible and they think they're dying. You're like, oh, you're, you're fucking fine. Just, just, just gotta ride this shit. It's like, you're not dying. You're 17. That's yeah. just the way it is. It's so funny. So much of what you bring up, 
leads into what I wanted to discuss. I, I, I have a dark sense of humor and I like to discuss deep things. And I was wondering how does knowing you're going to die, especially as a dad, influence how you're living now? As cliche as it sounds, it just encourages me to make the most of it. Um, it's actually expedited my time frame on when I want to accomplish certain things. I think that's probably the biggest, one of the biggest downfalls creators get into or people in general is making the mistake of thinking we have more time. And, you know, there's stuff we really want to do in life. We want to, you know, pursue a, a career goal. Maybe you want to go back to school. Maybe you want to write a book. Maybe you want to film a movie and you think, oh, I'll do it when, I'll do it when this, I'll do it when this. And when you remind yourself that, because I'll be randomly driving sometimes and I'll just think, all it would take is for one of these cars to swerve into my lane and I'm fucking toast. I think like, about that every we put, day. <laughs> we, we, as, we as humans put so much faith in other humans not to fucking kill us or mangle us every time we get on the road. It blows my mind. After reading some of the comments online to think, wait, these are the people that I'm entrusting with my life when I drive my car. It <laughs> blows my mind. It scares the hell out of me. And <laughs> how am I thinking still like alive? that? Oh, it's, it's, it's insane when you think about it. But all you have to do is hope they want to live as much as you want to live. And so they'll be somewhat responsible. But it's thinking like that, that. I'm like, no, I can't put this off. If I want to write this book, I got to get on it. If I'm going to create this TV show, I got to get that pilot finished. Um, I got to take this meeting. I got to make this trip, even though it's inconvenient, because this trip is going to set this, you know, this next event up for me. And it's really removed a lot of the procrastination in my life with the idea of thinking, hopefully I live to like 106, because I think it's kind of a pretty cool age to go. I don't know why, but I would love to live past 100 just to kind of spite everyone. Um, <laughs> but if I, if I don't, if I don't, I want to accomplish as much as I can. And I was reading recently, actually about a week ago, I was reading um, a study. I think it was Cornell University. There was a, a professor there who he literally asked groups of people. He did six separate studies, if I have the number correct. He On their deathbed, he said, what do you regret the most? And it was like 76% of people all had the same regret. And they regret not doing more with their life. Oof. Most most humans are going to end up that same way. Perhaps even more so now. Because I think this whole social media generation is... We waste so much goddamn time online that I think we're we're just pulling further and further back from our true dreams and goals in life. Because we're just burning our... Our, our time on dumb shit and for all you know that number is going to go up to like 81 percent or something you know 50 years from now and justin not wanting to deal with that i think coming to terms with that in you know your later years would be incredibly painful for me particularly as a writer because i already i mean if i'm working on a book I realistically am probably working on five books at a time, but there's like maybe one that I'm really drawn on, but I I'll start like, I'll write a chapter on a book and I'll save it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to finish this one next year. I just have so much I want to create. And if I looked back on my life and felt like I didn't create at least half of my ideas, I'd be pretty fucking bummed. I think that's a, a very uh, scary thought 
especially being on your deathbed and looking back and wishing you had done more. And I feel very connected to that. And I think that's why I also have all these things that I'm doing because I, I don't want to regret the thing that most people regret. And it, it, you have, that takes a lot of courage to live how you live and, and want to accomplish so much. Um, before we go, there's a couple fan questions. Would you be down to answer? Mm -hmm. I've, I've yeah, sorted through some rapid fire. I've sorted uh, through. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this one we kind of touched base on a little bit, but I don't know if you wanted to maybe um, extrapolate a little bit more. Mark Kimball says, how did you come up with the title speech therapy? I just thought it was a funny play on words, honestly, because the book itself is meant to be like conversations with a friend that serve as like, you know, everyone says, oh, talking with you is like going to therapy. You know, you have a friend you say that to. And so it's kind of like speech therapy. Okay. It's like these short little speeches that serve as therapy. I just thought it was funny. I've actually had probably quite a few, maybe a dozen or so people write me that bought it, not understanding what it was. And they <laughs> thought it was going to be like an actual speech therapy book to help their child learn, you know, to, to pronounce words better. And at that point, it's like, damn, you didn't read anything about the synopsis of this book. Um, they learned how yeah, to say was, fuck was, better. <laughs> right? That book actually doesn't have very much swearing in no, it, it, honestly. Doesn't. Like, I tried to pull back on it um, because I wanted it to be something that people could sense was more heartfelt for me. And I tried to make it less entertaining and more meaningful. And so in doing that, I pulled back my language a lot. And actually, funny enough, in the book Fucking History, there's one lesson out of the 111 where I didn't swear one time. And I don't know if people noticed that, but I intentionally wrote one where I didn't use any swear words. I used like a bunch of like stupid euphemisms and like the hex and dangs and stuff. Um, so if anyone, you know, I, I don't think anyone's ever noticed that or written that about it. Um, in a review, but I did do that intentionally in the book and in that one lesson in fucking history. <laughs> um, a, a mean three, two, nine, five, how to sustain a long-term relationship with the closest people. Oof. That's a, that's a, that's a, big yeah, question. I, well, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it. I think the way that would probably be most beneficial is taking care of yourself. Um, you know, we talked earlier about longevity, particularly in the entertainment space. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't show up for other people. And that's where a lot of people get it wrong is they put so much effort into helping others, they forget to help themselves and they find themselves lost and burnt out. And the key to longevity is to do what you know you need to do just to feel your best. And so in maintaining those long-term relationships, if you don't put yourself first, you're going to start harboring resentment. You're going to start getting like sniffy with people. You're going to start, you know, having those arguments in your head that we all have when we're, we're in you know, the wrong state of mind. And it's, it's, you know, it's similar to being on an airplane. You got to put your own mask on before your kid's mask kind of thing. That's, largely the way a lot of people need to live their lives it is and it's uh, something i say because i speak mainly to women because that's been my experience but i also am open to men because i have a lot of male fans that i say you'll never be able to love another human being until you first learn 
and believe you're worth loving yourself. And it oh, sounds that's, simplistic. That's so goddamn true, though. And it, it is. Honestly, it's so hard. It's so hard to do. It's, I think, maybe the single most difficult thing for a human being to do. And it's 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 not like it comes to completion. It's a daily practice. Mm-hmm. It's it's a fluctuating practice that you have to be consistent with and and really be committed to yourself. There's this great quote, I think, by um, a guy named Dr. Hyman, which is hilarious. He says that you need to create a boundary around your health that is non-negotiable. And mm-hmm. I live by that daily now because, like you were saying, we all know you can't pour from an empty cup and pouring from an empty cup creates a lot of friction and problems in your life. So learning to take some space for yourself creates more valuable space for the people who are closest to you. Um, We have one more question from one of my long-term fans, Blakey Sherman. He asks, he always asks funny questions. What's his beard care routine? That shit is luxurious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nothing at all. Honestly, I don't do anything for it. Um, I don't even put product in it. It's just water and my hands. You dudes are just so lucky. Bar of soap, some water, and you walk around fucking luxurious. I mean, I still use eye cream and other stuff like that, but as far as like the beard's concerned, I've never been a product guy. Um, I actually found it fairly obnoxious when I first started let my facial hair grow out how many people tried to sell me beard oil or tried to get me to rep their stupid beard brand. I mean, if you, if you my, my thought on that, and you know what I'm talking about, it was like 2000. So growing up, my father always had facial hair and my uncles always had facial hair. And I always thought facial hair was just cool. It was just something dudes should have. And so I've actually never shaved my face with a razor my entire life. Um, as soon as I could grow, like, you know, the dirty little uh, teenage goatee. I ha- <laughs> as, soon, yeah, as, soon, as soon as I could grow any kind of little teenage facial hair, I've always had facial hair. Um, but I, I, I just let it get longer as I got older because I started caring less about looking, you know, young and cool. And I just wanted to be comfortable. And But what I'm talking about is, you know, there was that time period in, like, 2013 to probably 2016 where... Like every company was like beard oil, beard combs, beard this, beard that. And if your beard is your identity, you need to do some fucking self work. <laughs> um, the people who walk around wearing like bearded and proud, like, dude, <laughs> you don't need to wear that fucking shit. We can see you have facial hair. That is clearly too much of your confidence is derived from that. I would advise you to honestly shave it off to force yourself to develop confidence otherwise. And then once you've done that, grow back if you want it. Um, so yeah, as far as like routine and stuff, I don't have one at all. Um, basically, when it gets too long for me to drink coffee without spilling it on myself, I know it's time to cut my mustache. And that's about my only gauge is when eating becomes too much of a hindrance, I'll cut my mustache back and then trim it up. But other than that, just, it is what it is. It's very on brand. I'm glad that you don't have a full fucking routine because I would have a real problem with it at this point. No. <laughs> if you no, had a full I have, fucking like, beard routine. No. I, I've never, it's never even, I, I've never even desired to try it. It's just not, it's not my thing. 
Well, I have one last question for you. I literally could talk to you for hours and I do, I'm going to put a pin on having a podcast in the future when another book comes out or some, something you'd like to promote. Yeah, we should definitely, we should definitely follow up and, you know, even Religion. just like touch, yeah, just touch and base in like six months. Life changes so much and I'm probably actually, you might be one of the last few podcasts I record this year because I'm at a point where I kind of just am tired of doing podcasts. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate I'm probably it. just gonna take, I'm gonna take a couple months and just not do any, just so I feel like I have new things to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm just gonna live life and focus on writing, and you know, come the new year, I'll open myself up for some more and have hopefully hopefully have you know some new experiences to talk about and grow from. I know you will with that brain and that and the baby. Th- those are two amazing things for f- life fodder. Well, and. And I live in Florida now, and there's a lot oh, of great. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to learn from here. A man, a man in Florida. That could be your next fucking book title. <laughs> <laughs> My. Um... It's not a bad idea. That actually sounds <laughs> like an it old. Hem- it sounds. It sounds like an old book, like Hemingway would have written. You know. Absolutely. I. My last question is: What is right now in your mind a legacy you'd like to leave for your son? I would say hopefully, I mean, I don't know how how possible this is, but the way I've conducted myself the past two years or the past three years, um, I probably lost as many readers or followers as I gained because I really wanted to put my neck out there for people and for the importance of being able to think for yourself and not being shamed or guilted or divided. And so I really am quite proud of myself when I look back and think I never caved and I dealt with a lot of blowback at times. And if my son were old enough to have witnessed the way that I conducted myself online, you know, if he were 16, 17, I would think he would think, damn, like, Watching my dad stand up the way he did, like, I'm pretty comfortable doing it myself. And if he could just have that mindset throughout his whole life, everything would feel more manageable for him. Um, So if I could just instill him with the confidence of being willing to do the hard things and having some integrity and being a man of character, I would feel like I succeeded as a father. So right now, probably the easiest way for me to instill that legacy would be the current book I'm working on. Because like we said earlier, if something were to happen, I think if he were to read this book when he's old enough to understand a lot of it, he would get a really good idea of who his father was. And hopefully he would he would feel proud. Well, that's beautiful. And I honestly feel so grateful that you made time to talk with me. I have completely defaced this book with highlighting and dog earring (laughs) and making notes so maybe next time but you guys definitely have to check out speech therapy it's a great book to reference and there's i i don't know 110 (laughs) how many pages do you have in this book all these different there's 52 there's 52 lessons 52 lessons it's amazing um i laughed and i learned and i really connected with you and i've connected with you through social media and i feel so grateful that you took time to connect with me here 
where can my fans find you what would you like to promote and anything coming down the pipeline i mean you did a great job promoting for me um <laughs> if they if, if they just search kyle creek or the captain on any social platform they should find me pretty easily um but yeah I, i'm glad we connected and we'll definitely stay in touch and i would love to do a follow-up one of these next time in la if we get a chance to grab coffee we should try and do that as well hell yeah i got some good coffee spots i'd love to do that and thank you so much i really really appreciate it you're the fucking bomb all right thank you for having me i'll chat with you soon awesome have a good day bye Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.